Welcome to the Beekeeper's Corner Podcast. February 14th, 2016. Episode number 90. Won't you be my Valentine? There has been a lasting battle in beekeeping in the quest of good versus evil, honeybees versus Varroa Destructor. In our comic book view of the world, the hero honeybee, beloved by nature, is fighting forces with the scourge of the colony and being hampered in its ability to do goodwill for plants, trees, shrubs, and mankind. Varroa has proven stubborn, and it is widely believed that in our time, our hero will ultimately win as good always triumphs over evil, but for now, the drama plays out in the struggle for superiority. Let's not forget that our nemesis is right around the corner, but like Q to James Bond, mankind attempts to help in the battle for right by offering technology that may one day allow the bees to triumph. Will bees win out? Can Varroa be put in its place? Tune in today to find out. Hello everyone, I'm Kevin England, the host of the Beekeeper's Corner podcast, and your opening alludes to what we have coming up in this episode We'll explore a different option using heat in the war on Varroa. Also in this episode, wax hacks. Different pastes that you can make from beeswax. A recap of a few meetings I attended recently. Exploring 2015's swarm report data. Overnight oats. A public service announcement on an upcoming intermediate beekeeping course. The promised bait hive update. And perhaps a few other odds and ends as we meander. We'll see how we're doing on time. But first, since it's Valentine's Day, I think we should have a special guest for the local hive report. I can't do that. Happy Valentine's Day. You're a heartbreaker, <laughs> dream maker, love taker. Don't you mess around with me. Nice. Thanks. Happy Valentine's Day. Welcome to the local hive report. Why, thank you. You know, I have nothing to report, so I figured you and I could get a little chat. All right. You know what I've been doing this morning? What? I fed the birds yesterday. Yeah. So I've been watching them out the window, trying to figure out how many birds are coming. And, you know, it's supposed to snow, so they're skitting around all trying to get their food. Bunch of... um, Dark-eyed juncos and. Uh-huh. Are you sure it's a hive report and not a? I, I know what is this bird report? Sparrows are out flitting around and blue jays were out earlier that this morning. That means spring is coming. Well, I think they're getting their food before the snow covers it. Yeah. It's been cold, so the bees haven't been out foraging. Mm-mm. In fact, I haven't even been out to look at the hives. I'm just hoping they're hanging in there. I was out a couple weeks ago in the snow. I mentioned that. Did you? That all the animal tracks, yeah. various animal tracks led to the front of the hive. So at the meeting, I bought some pollen patties. 
No, I was going to make my own and make a video of that, but they were so inexpensive. They're like two fifty for a pollen patty. Why wow, I, that's great. Why would I make my own? No, that's great. And they actually look like caramel, like I wanted to take a bite. Yeah, take a bite. <laughs> they're probably edible. They're, they're nothing but like uh, soy proteins and things mm. like that. So it's kind of strange uh, feeding pollen patties that you didn't make. You don't know what's in it, but... It came from the bee club, right? Hopefully it's yeah, they're, an they're honest... Mass manufactured for beekeepers, so assuming oh. they're good. Okay. So the point of feeding the bees pollen in the spring is so that they build a lot of young. Mm-hmm. And my hope is that we'll be able to have a huge amount of hives. My hope is that we get a lot of honey this year, yeah. honey. Yeah, me too. Right, honey? Yes, dear. <laughs> Did you, uh, you know I ordered two packages? No. <laughs> I did. You're trying to fill all the boxes that are sitting in the garage? Yes. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to do, especially the ware and the top bar. Yes. It's fun to experiment with those, isn't it? Yeah. So I mentioned to the club that uh, I expect to have a bunch of different hives over the farm. And maybe we could do the June meeting there. That would be exciting. Yeah. And show people the different hive form factors. All we got to do is have bees. So That would help. <laughs> so anyway, I, I thought we'd do this little chat so I could fill you in on the plans for the year and get your feedback. Anything? Live. Besides honey? Yeah, <laughs> live. <laughs> While we're eating lunch. No. Okay. Well, Honey's the goal. Then I guess I'll close the. I need to make it down. all year with our honey. Honey, our honey, our yeah, honey, and not be, stuff we buy. I have to buy. Right? Although I just won all that honey, how awesome was that? It's great. Love it. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, I agree. We want to make it all year. We eat so much. And we eat a lot honey. of honey because yeah. we have tea with a lot of honey every night. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. Plenty of things to record in the podcast. Do I put in you singing? If you want. <laughs> People can laugh at me. It's okay. Yeah. I don't mind. I'm sure they're just pleased to hear from you again. It's been a long time <laughs> since you've been on the podcast. Oh, look, a, a woodpecker. Cool. He's a big one. He's really a, a yellow-bellied sapsucker. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> People call him red-headed woodpeckers, but it's he's truly a yellow-bellied sapsucker. He is red-headed, though. Yes, but if you look at a red-headed woodpecker, their whole head is red. This is just the back top. Oh. See the things we learn on a beekeeping podcast that just explores. All right. Thanks, honey, for the chat. Oh, you're welcome, and happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day to you, my love. I have such a darling and understanding wife. She's the best. So let's go to segment number one. Call this one, It's Getting Hot in Here. No, I won't sing the song. I'm tempted. (laughs) In our opening, we tongue-in-cheek mentioned a way that mankind can assist the bees in the quest of getting the upper hand on Varroa. That hasn't gone so well when considering the chemical route down sideways we're always looking for a better mousetrap and perhaps we've been looking in the wrong place there's a known quotient that varroa do not do well in hot conditions the principle of this is called hypothermia if you heat an environment to a certain temperature 
A narrow window just over 100 degrees Fahrenheit will kill the mites, but bees can tolerate the heat and you'll be good to go. The general range of temperatures for this to be effective is around 40 degrees Celsius, 104 degrees Fahrenheit, to kill the mite, but you don't want to exceed 47 degrees Celsius, 116 degrees Fahrenheit. Otherwise, you risk harming the bees. So maybe we could use controlled heat to our advantage, but there is a problem, and that is our hives are not an oven. We can't set the dial and get controlled results. Our bees are outside, and environmental conditions, wind, humidity, come into play. And then you have the size of your hive cavity, ventilation, number of bees inside, and all of the sudden variables make this a complex math problem. You also have the bees themselves, bearding, evaporation of moisture, and interior cooling. They will handle what nature throws at them, but what happens when you apply heat that is out of their normal operation zones? Heat, a hive outside of norms, and you risk messing with the flora and fauna inside, killing bees and literally getting it wrong and melting things down. It sounds like a challenging bit of science. Still, heat kills mites, so can't we figure out how to tackle this problem? There were studies in research labs in the 80s and 90s that documented that heat can be an effective method to kill varroa, and if kept in tolerances, can be tolerated by the bees. But for all the reasons just covered, few have gone this route to try and tackle the problem. I begin to think about one of my other interests in this world, and that is cooking. If we can build a barbecue machine that cooks a pork roast to a delicious perfection over hours, low and slow, why can't we engineer a heat box? Well, as I look around, I see that some are actually trying this, and I'm going to share some different solutions that are in play. The first one is called Hivet. H-I-V-E-T, I'm assuming I'm pronouncing that right, but if not, you know how to spell it. This is a device that consists of two heating panels, a lower panel and an upper panel, powered by an external power source. On the website, they indicate that you could power this with a car power inverter or generator. The device you're putting, by appearances of the equipment depicted on their website, or should I say devices, look like hive-shaped boxes, and I presume you put one under the hive and the other on the top. The principle is you plug it in, and the chamber in between gets heated to an even 42 degrees Celsius, 107 degrees Fahrenheit. That's right through the middle of the temperature range we talked about a moment ago. There is a comment about placing four special evaporators on the website which are included in the package to control the humidity. These ensure sufficient relative humidity, which, as we noted, has a lot to do with consistent treatment inside the hive. So in sorts, this solution makes your hive a temporary hotbox and has the components to control the administration of heat, but for the -the run-of-the-mill beekeeper, are you going to each hive and do this? If you have a few hives, perhaps you might, but it's likely a no-go for commercial guys, of course. 
So now we'll move into device number two of three. This one's called the Varroa Controller. It takes a different approach to the problem but, and employs equipment that is external to the hive. Truth be told, this device looks like a tailgate party cooler built to hold frames. It's an insulated box and it has a built-in heater. To use it, you pull your brood chamber frames from the hive, take the bees off of them, and then set the frames in the device for a heat cycle. As the website says, this device uses one enclosure to control the heat, ventilation, and humidity. It's a little fussier getting it prepped, getting the bees off, moving the frames. But one advantage I see here is if you shake the bees off, they don't ex get exposed to the heat, unlike the other one. Of course, now the larvae get exposed and could be harmed, but at least the adults are not getting baked. The container for this solution will hold 18 frames, and it appears that a typical treatment is about two hours long. Another interesting idea, again, not practical for the commercial beekeeper, and somewhat manual for the hobby beekeeper. Again, I'm just surprised that these were out there when I went to go take a look for something like this after learning that heat kills Varroa. And now what I found is idea number three, and the one we'll focus on in this segment. This one is, my words, primed to revolutionize be the beekeeping industry, and I can't help but think that its website takes a flow hive style approach in presenting the story. I don't know if that's serendipity or on purpose, and forgive me my sins if I'm planting the seed of the notion that this is a flow hive style event as I don't want to disparage a good idea with negative connotation if that's what happens because I know some people recoil at the idea of the flow hive phenomena and well, let's just put that aside and go with the principles of the solution for number three. The thermo solar Hive is a hive designed to use energy of the sun to generate heat. It is, in appearances, a hive that looks like it has its heritage in a Weray-style hive, but a little larger in footprint from what I could tell from the pictures. It has prominent windows on the front and a large box underneath the hives on the hive stand that extend beyond the back edge of the lowest brood chamber. The premise of use is you remove the lid and a thermosolar ceiling underneath the lid increases the shortwave light radiation into longwave thermal radiation and heats the hive. It is designed with integrated digital thermometers and allows you to monitor the interior temperature until the desired heat is achieved. The boxes below the lid are engineered in a way and without getting overly detailed, have linings and other design aspects that help manage the temperature inside for both what I'll loosely call the treatment and everyday living. This includes a front wall that has, that is largely dominated by a thermal solar window. So picture this hive. It has a box on the top, like an overhang roof. You take it off. 
It has an inner cover that has a ceiling made of some substrate that changes sun into thermal. And then the boxes are engineered in a way that keep heat in. And they have a front window that has the same thermal style material that translate heat into the body of the cavity. Got it? Good. These details let this hive heat up to a desired temperature, something that could not be achieved with a run-of-the-mill Langstroth hive. So during thermotherapy, both the top ceiling and front windows transfer heat into the hive, and that in turn heats the brood chamber, and the heat is absorbed by the wax and translated to the cells within. It accumulates there for the period of time it takes to cook the varroa, but not the bees. Now, it doesn't actually cook them. It probably overheats them. But I like the notion of sizzling varroa, so I'll take my liberties in the description. One thing we haven't spoken about in any of these solutions is messing up the temperature. We all know about melting beeswax, which would be a huge disaster. Get the temp to 131 degrees Fahrenheit and wax begins to soften. Over 149 degrees Fahrenheit, and you'll literally achieve meltdown. You also have to consider that time plays a factor. Keep the heat on too long, and even in the right temperature range, you literally do cook the things inside the hive. In all three solutions, the aim is to control the temps so you never get in a range or go too long. So in this particular solution, if you go to the FAQ on the website, you'll see some of the in, in, easy for me to say, intricacies of this setup. The boxes are heavier because they contain insulation materials and glass. The glass has to be covered on warm sunny days or they will activate and overheat the hive. But it also means that on non-summer days, it probably lets the hive heat itself and could be a plus in winter by alleviating, alleviating the bees from having to do all the work. These are all interesting ideas that have pros and cons. The first two solutions are commercially available today. You can go buy them. And the third one is available for pre-order and about to be crowdfunded through the outlet Indiegogo for options on internal international orders. I find these ideas intriguing and it makes me think of some other work in an area or anecdotal evidence of solutions that have some of these characteristics. Zachary Wong from the University of Michigan has the mite zapper solution in the marketplace, something I think I've spoken about on past episodes. It employs a special drone brood frame that lets you connect it to an electrical source and zap the frame, eliminating the mites inside. I should be specific, eliminating the mites inside the cells. Loosely, it's a form of drone brood culling, but you don't have to remove the frame from the hive. You access the power leads through a little door or entrance shim, and there's very little cost to operate this thing. You just have to have power out towards the hive. I, I wonder if uh, that cooks the larvae, too. Didn't think about that kills all the drones i'll have to go look that back up at some point but 
doesn't matter too much. We're really here about uh, helping the mites, so killing the mites. So anecdotally, I have to wonder where polystyrene hives play into this. I have a B-Box brand polystyrene hive that I've been using one season so far. Actually, I set it up two years ago, but the colony was robbed out last fall and didn't make it through the winter. Last spring, I put a swarm in it, and it seems to be doing fine going into this spring. And the instructions for the box indicate that when it gets hot, you should flip the lid over so the hive ventilates. It's an interesting design. When the lid is set the way it is for winter, it completely encapsulates the hive. But when you flip it over, it creates an air chamber or channel similar to the principle of a waré hive that allows air to pass across the top of the hive and cool it off. So the instructions for the hive says when it gets hot, flip the lid so the hive ventilates. Now I'm not for ignoring manufacturer's instructions which indicate to flip the lid so it ventilates, but... If I put a brood minder in there, I could sense the temperature and wonder on a warm day, could I use the sensor to figure out the ranges of treatments that these systems offer and not have to have any special system? Will it get hot enough inside the hive to cook the Varroa and I don't need any special hive equipment? Now that would be interesting. And I don't really have to do anything other than monitor the temperature. It could be the secret sauce for this hive and give further credence to the notion that a simple Langstroth wood box is being outmoded. So before I get too excited, I wanted to step out of this whole notion and say, what would nature do? If bees were in a tree, would the temperature ever get to the point where it would kill the mites and not the bees? Would we even want this, as it could kill good fauna in the hive and let bad fauna take root? I always think lately about Michael Bush's comments about bacteria and things that are inside the hive, the ecosystem, the ecological impact of changing the environments to something other than nature intended. Just because heat kills Varroa, Let's not get ahead of ourselves. Perhaps it's the wrong way to go and we simply should be patient, hang on, and let nature, let the bees learn to deal with the problem. I I always fall back on this notion, but it doesn't hurt in my estimation to explore the landscape of these type of ideas. So if you want to know further about these things that I've spoken of, I've provided some links to the four solutions and a link to a research paper that talks about heat to eliminate Varroa. This particular research is for Varroa Jacobsoni, Jacobsini, I don't know how to say that. It's Jacob, S-O-N-I, that's how you spell it, and not Varroa Destructor, but I provide it as a reference because I think it does a good job at outlining the principles of using heat against Varroa, and I'm guessing it's a like for like. You can check out our show notes at our website, www.bkcorner.org. Look for show number 90. Segment number two, I call this one Wax Hacks. 
I can't take credit for the Wax Hacks title. I found it on someone's blog, but I thought it so captured the essence of this segment that I couldn't help from borrowing it. So recently I made lip balm for an upcoming association meeting, and I did the dry run of how to make some tubes so I knew how to make it when we do the live demo. In my travels of getting organized for that particular endeavor, I found a number of leads on a topic that I've had a notion to explore, and that is using wax to make paste to preserve wood. I thought that I might enhance the lip balm presentation by offering one other thing you could do with melted wax while you're at it. And the more I explored this, the more intrigued I became and was pleasantly surprised at how easy this notion is of making pastes for various uses. You could use wax in different formulations to create furniture polish, leather treatment, wood restoration paste, metal tool preservation, drawer side lubrication, fabric waterproofing, skin cream, waterproofing matches, fire starters, and even more. The project is uh, really simple if you think about it. Melt wax, mix in oil of choice, pour in a container of choice, and let cool. The contemplative part is how much wax and other substances to use. This is the experimentation side, as you can render a mixture that is soft or very stiff depending on the ingredients you use. I found one resource that had some sage advice that said, simply don't fuss with this. Mix it four to one, and that's where I started. I learned that you make the product, and if you want a stiffer or softer product, paste, you could reheat it and add more to the ratio and adjust the outcome. So it's four parts oil to one part beeswax. And if you want it softer, heat it up until it liquefies, add more oil. If you want it stiffer, add more wax. Change the proportion and let it cool, and it's good to go. No harm, no foul. That's my kind of project. So recently I made three paste formulas. One using wax and olive oil. One using wax and boiled linseed oil and one using wax and mineral oil. My goal was to use the olive oil one to coat food product utensils, restoring cutting boards, wooden spoons, wooden drink coasters, and the like. Linseed oil would be the one for leather, and mineral oil and olive oil for skin creams, and things like that. So one more thing about the mineral oil. Some people don't like the notion because it's petroleum-based. To me, I'm honestly not sure what the fuss is all about because Jason Johnson's baby oil is mineral oil straight up with fragrance. And I'll let you in on a little secret. Truth be told, that's what I used for my oil when I mixed it. So it feels like it makes a lot of sense to take a second and offer a word of caution on melting wax. I would assume a lot of people know that, but in case you don't, you really could get yourself in trouble Wax is highly combustible as it's used for candles and fire starters, after all. When I do this, I use a double boiler and recommend that you avoid heating wax directly in a pan on the stove. I measured my oils and put them in the tins I was going to use. 
I melted my wax in a double boiler and then added it to the oils and stirred them well while they were still in a liquid state. I was careful not to put the oils in my double, double burner as I really only want my double burner for one thing, melting wax. And the other thing about melting wax is you want to be careful about the temperatures. If you get too high, you can burn it and it'll get little black specks in it. I wondered if manually mixing these products would suffice and get them incorporated well enough. I think the paste that I created came out well incorporated, so I'm happy to report there was no need to mix or blend them. I did have this anti-can-turn-beater thing that I was going to use in case, you know, one with a couple beaters and you crank the handle. And you might consider that or something else if it doesn't come out to your liking, but in my case, the pastes were firm or the right textures. So a moment ago, I said to use a 4 to 1 ratio for all three of these. So how did they turn out? The linseed oil and olive oil mixtures resulted in firm pastes. The mineral oil one is more like a loose gel similar to the consistency of softened butter. You could tell the difference between the olive oil one, it's shiny and glossy, and the linseed oil one is like a low gloss matte finish. Both of these products are soft enough in their paste form that you can take a t-shirt cloth material and rub off enough paste to transfer to your target product. One word about the linseed oil, it's made from squeezing flax seed. Conventionally, you could buy it in two forms, raw, raw or boiled. For this purpose, if you're making something, use the boiled linseed oil variant as it dries faster and it's the one you're going to want to use to make a paste. Raw linseed oil is known to have a very slow drying time. But, you know, if you're doing something outside and you want it to last from rain and other things, maybe you consider making it the raw way so it stays present longer when you apply it. But for most DIY products, you probably want to use the boiled variant. Do note when you use this, it has a certain odor, and you want to take that into consideration, meaning the linseed oil. The mineral oil and olive oil blends, in my experience, are more neutral in smell. Although the mineral oil I used, baby oil, has a little bit of scent in it already. But of course, it's very pleasant. So Sharon's been cracking up because I've been polishing everything in sight. I polished our mahogany kitchen table and the kitchen chairs. I did another wooden table on the porch. I polished wooden coasters, all of our wooden spoons, salad bowls. Well, you get the picture. One of the things I really enjoyed was treating an old pair of boots that I have. I really like these boots. I've foregone wearing them because they are worn and shabby looking and not very nice. I sometimes wear them when I'm out in the garage or whatever, but I used to wear them to work. I took them to the races one time and I remember doing something with a racing tire and I got them all dirty and scuffed them all up and ever since then they just haven't looked good enough. When I applied the paste to them, they came out great. In fact, I wore them to work on casual Friday, and somebody gave me a comment about them, how nice they looked. 
unsolicited. So how about that? I took before and after photos of some of these things. And I'll have a supporting blog post on my website if you want to see the outcomes. I'm also going to take them to the local beekeepers meeting and show people the differences. So one thing I've noted on applications is it's almost universal that it darkens whatever it's been treating if it's raw wood. On my tables that are finished with some sort of clear, it just made them uh, shiny and cleaned them up a little bit. Some might not like the fact that it darkens your product, so my suggestion is test it before you go. Haul hog on this and make sure whatever you're doing, it doesn't change it to uh, something you dislike. There's people who do leather and they just hate the fact that it really turns dark, as an example. So this is simple and really gave me some great ideas about what to do with my old wax. What I've explained is akin to the starter kit for wax pastes. Just simple four-to-one oil and wax. If you research this on the web, you can find more sophisticated formulas that use other mix-ins for various properties. The leather I treated was fairly clean, but you could treat leather that is really dirty by buying some sort of commercial leather cleaner or adding stuff right into your paste like mineral spirits, ammonia, alcohol, or other distillates that help the process along. You can also add almond butter in order to replace natural oils in the leather. You could add castor oil to your concoction to provide a certain shine or sheen, if you will. Coconut oil is another additive I've seen in some of these formulations. And, you know, you could even add propolis to mixtures for a waterproofing aspect. I could tell you there are no shortage of DIY recipes for the use of beeswax-based creams and pastes. And one of the more interesting areas to explore was Reddit, which seems to have a microculture on just about any topic known to mankind. So I'll provide some links to the resources I found on the topic in our show notes to support the segment. And you can check out my website for a feature on the topic that will be posted around the same time that this podcast is released. I found some old decorative tins that I've used to do the formal presentation with the lip balm. It just makes it look nice to put it in something that's appealing. One last thing to share on the topic, if you don't feel like this is your cup of tea, you don't have any wax, or you're just never going to do this, I have a suggestion on how you can get a good quality paste. I am a fan of Obanoff's Heavy Duty LP Paste. Obanoff is O-B-E-N-A-U-F apostrophe S. I don't know why they call it LP Paste, but this stuff is beeswax based. And it has propolis in it. From my understanding, the founder created this product as a treatment to firefighter gear. And I've used it in my home for waterproof protection of my boots back in the day. And still have some in the cabinet. That being said, making your own is fun and expensive. And this other stuff is a bit costly. But if you're not into DIY, LP is highly recommended. I'll provide a link to that website in the show notes. So try it out. Something to do with your wax. Very simple. And uh, you can also make lip balm while you're at it. 
you'll need a couple more ingredients, but wax melting day is a good time to go ahead and tackle this. Segment number three is latest meeting recaps. In our last episode, I mentioned Bob Kloss and I would be attending the Philly Beekeepers Guild Natural Beekeeping Symposium. We had a good day out at Temple University. It opened with a presentation from Karen Rakaseka. I'm assuming that's how you say her name. Pennsylvania's state apiarist presenting the State of the Bees 2015. She talked about the dynamics of beekeeping in Pennsylvania and a number of watch items for PA beekeepers related to things the PA apiarist pool is keeping an eye out for. Japanese hornets, choppy laylop, mites, and other items. Interesting to see the dynamic of how many beekeepers they have there. She reported on that, that they have five apiarist inspectors in their system. It's certainly different from New Jersey. After a sort of break, Michael Palmer, the featured guest speaker, took the podium. I've seen Mike speak on a number of occasions, both in video and in person. I'm a huge fan, and I love Mike's message about sustainability and using new colonies to keep your operation going and to have reinforcements. The principal message Mike has is that you use your faltering hives to make nucleus colonies, and if you have the quantity of hives, you use your local queens to keep the hive population strong. I get the message, and in some respects, it applies, but to the Phillies beekeeper, Philly beekeepers, who probably don't have a multitude of hive, I have to wonder how that message was received. In talking to Bob on the way home, we both have heard Mike on a number of occasions, and there's a lot to his message, and it takes some dissecting to break down. I made an audio recording of his presentation, and usually what I do is just listen to it over and over again because there's so much depth and detail in what he says. You have to listen through a couple times to see what his messaging is. You know, mating yards, comb building yards, queen yards, production colonies, all terms that Mike works in harmony to keep his operation going. But as he talks through it in the short period of window, it becomes overwhelming. And half the time, I'm not quite sure following him. And that's why it helps to go back and listen to it again. My recommendation is you can go listen to the presentation. I'm assuming Philly beekeepers, they usually post the presentations. We went and saw Michael Bush there a couple of years ago. Or you could find presentations from Michael on the web in a number of locations, especially the one from England that he did. So I was interested that he advanced his process since the last time we heard from him. He focused on a new concept to me, and that was the four over four hive stack. Mike splits his conventional boxes into four frame boxes and then stacks them side by side, meaning alongside of each other, two boxes. And it allows the bees to short, share warmth between the two hives through the middle wall. Mike calls these things bee bombs. And they're very prolific. And with a small amount of frames for them to do the work, you could tell that they will grow very quickly. And there's not a lot of space to move around in. 
So what I mean by that is you could take a full-size box and carve it up into two four-frame sides and then move the divider in the middle over and over and over and over, get five, six, eight frames, whatever you want to do. And he's done that with a feeder in the middle, a special feeder that he made to separate one side from the other. But what I've noticed is he's recently switched to, or built into his operation, literal boxes that are four frames wide. Bob and I had the conversation on the way home. They're not a five-frame nuke. They're a four-frame nuke. I'm guessing he makes these in his woodshop. And he made the commentary about this time of year he's in his woodshop nonstop making equipment. So instead of moving sideways, one of the things he says is that bees don't like to move sideways. You could make the chamber bigger by increasing four frames to five to six or whatever, but the bees don't use the space. It's better to leave them at four frames and put a second box over top of them. And that's the four over four prospect. So what he does is he sets a four frame nuke next to a four frame nuke and he puts them over top of his production colonies and they share common walls and heat and so on. And then when he wants to expand the four frame nukes up, he puts a second box over them. So that it's a four over four stack and a four over four stack sitting next to each other on top of a stack of regular conventional Langstroth hives. Hmm. You know, that sounds a lot like Bob Kloss's nuke condo that we described in the episode 85 November nights. How about that? So cool presentation from Mike. I highly recommend if you ever get a chance to go see him. I scooted over and asked him if I could possibly talk him into presenting on the April 23rd date, but he was not available for us. No surprise there, but it didn't it didn't uh, hurt to go ask. Who knows? Could have hit a home run there. So there were other sessions at the event. Mike and a few local queen producers talked about queen rearing in a panel discussion. You know, quite quite honestly, it's not something that I have a lot of information about. Or for whatever reason, I'm not totally excited about this topic, raising my own queens. This grafting and all that other stuff seems really fussy for a local beekeeper, but to each his own, I suppose. Somewhere down the line, I'll consider trying it. But for now, I was just interested in listening in on what they had to say about process and science and things like that. The main takeaway from the panel is the opinion that the real problem with packages... My main takeaway, I should say. Maybe everybody else got something else out of this presentation. The real problem with the packages from down south is the notion that the queens are inferior due to mating. The assumption is there's too many queens trying to be mated at one time in a yard. And it's too early in the year, which means the drones may not be great. And they feel that the packages are inferior because of it. Their recommendation straight up across the board is if you buy a package, because that's what some of these people in Philadelphia will do, and you don't have four over four setups to reproduce queens and things, and your own sustainable apiary, and you are buying packages, get them started in the package form, but then replace the queens with something with local genetics and a good proper mating profile. 
So I'm kind of in angst here because after seeing what Gardner Apiary has to say about how they run their operation, I think the answer between poor packages and sustainability is somewhere in the middle. I think the package industry is in a no-win situation. And I think there are probably good package makers. And if you buy your packages later than when they're first, first, first available, you might actually get good packages. And they seem to be villainized when everyone's looking to discover where the problems are. Contrary to the panel's discussion, David Tarpey was saying that commercial queens in a blind review got passing grades. He gave them a B plus, if I remember. So what's one to do? I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. You heard me say on the outset with Sharon that I'm buying two packages this year. Not because I want package bees in my operation. Quite frankly, I wouldn't do that. I can make splits and get nukes and talk to friends and buy bees or do whatever. But I'm doing it because the two hives I want to populate are a wary hive and a top bar. And I don't want to jigger something up from Langstroth frames to fit in those other two formats, which are not the same. So for those, I'll start with packages and then through some friends, <clears throat> Bob, secure local queens and switch them over as the panel suggested. I do want to maintain local stock here of queens. I'll take the queens that came with the packages if they're performing okay and use them for splits or brood making, comb making, nucleus hives. And just keep them as backups in case something goes wrong with the local hives that I have. So there he went off on a little sidebar, and I'll come back to the meetings. But I wanted to say that meetings, as such, are really worth the price of admission. When you get a lot of smart people in a room, especially those who work with bees every day, your learning curve increases exponentially, and you get a chance to hear what they have to say. You may not always agree with what people are saying, but their raw experience is so valuable at times when you can consider the way they're doing things. And I love just sitting in an audience and postulating all things bees and being in the zone there. There was a short break before the afternoon sessions, and I was able to take advantage of the various vendors attending the Philly show to pick up some blueberry and raspberry honey. I wanted to contribute something to our honey tasting segment of unique varietal honeys at our next NWNJBA meeting coming up on the 27th of this month. So in the afternoon, I attended the other part of the symposium to hear a talk by Stephanie Elson Bruneau. She operates the Benevolent Bee Company and spoke about the amazing products of the hive. You know, I've heard a lot of these talks. I wasn't too sure about this one when I stepped in, but Stephanie gave a great presentation on the merits of products of the hive and how they're being used in society. She presented facts on honey, propolis, wax, and even shared some recipes that the audience was going to get a copy of, and I did get. As an example, I have on my to-do list to try and make some hard honey candies and she shared a recipe for soothing honey cough drops. To me, a cough drop and a honey candy are almost the same thing. depends on whether you put something like menthol or, or whatever in it. But um, 
Very appreciative to have that. She also spoke of a product I haven't heard of called Fire Cider. It's a traditional remedy that have its, has its roots in folk medicine. It's an apple cider vinegar infused with products that include honey. And if you consume it directly or add it to juice, hot tea, drizzle it on salad, or use it as a dressing, it should jazz you right up. She had some on hand for those that were game to give it a try. And unfortunately, there were so many people crowded around the table, I didn't get a chance. But I did get some turmeric honey paste that one uses to make golden milk. Something I had not heard of prior to this meeting. This concoction mixes turmeric, black pepper, cayenne pepper, ginger, cinnamon, coconut oil, and of course honey. It has a really tangy punch. And I'm going to try it again at some point. More on that in a second. So I had a chance to chat with Stephanie after the show. And I have a lead on circling back with her at some point and see if we can bring some of her thoughts to the podcast in a one-on-one. All we have to do is find the time for the follow-up. It's a busy spring, but I'm confident that this is one I'm not going to let get away, as I really enjoyed the different things that she had to talk about. All in all, it was a great day, and as is customary with me, I have one more tidbit to share about this particular meeting. <laughs> Bob... Bob Kloss and I have this running joke about door prizes. We've been to a dozen plus meetings and Bob is about one for 24 on winning any door prizes. He never, ever, ever wins. Although I do recall a meeting at Stockton State College where he won some frames or something. Me, on the other hand, I have the luck of the Blarney about me. And true to form, I won one of the 10 door prizes being offered to the people in the crowd that day. I don't know what it is but I probably have about a 25% run rate on taking something home from these meetings. I've won hives and equipment and such. In this particular meeting, I won a basket of Instar apiaries, varietal honeys. It's a local honey company from Philadelphia. They were selling honey sourced from the Ukraine for sunflower, black locust, and linden in the basket to be exact. And also in the basket went, was Instar's organic hoot and holler honey mixture, which is the concoction I spoke of that makes golden milk. There was one other ditty to make the prize even sweeter, a voucher for a laying queen or three ripe queen cells. So ironically, I was considering purchasing these special honeys from Instar to go along with the blueberry and raspberry ones I'd purchased earlier during the break, but figured... I'd spent enough money at the show, and lo and behold, I won them at the end of the day anyway. Yep, it was a good meeting, and Bob, sorry, but better luck next time. <laughs> I have to tell you, everybody, I really do root for him when we get together. At some point, I might have to like trade tickets with him or something so he can win something. So as a consolation, I do plan to share those honeys out with our association at the tasting and Bob will get to try them. I'd feel guilty otherwise. Maybe he'll go with me to the run to Instar to go pick up my queen and we could have another good run there. So I have one other meeting to recount and that was this past Saturday's NJBA winter meeting. I had some difficulties in the morning so I got there after the meeting started. 
Unfortunately, I missed Megan McConnell speaking from the Be Informed Partnership about a project she was doing, but I caught Tim Schuler's talk, sir, plural, and a talk with the Rutgers representative, Dean Polk, who spoke about honeybee health as it relates to the New Jersey blueberry industry. Dean's work was spurred on by a decline in blueberries and it has set off a red flag with growers and beekeepers in the state. Commercial operators saw a 30 to 40% hive decline in 2014, and it has been accompanied by an increase of queenless nest hives. Queenless hives. Having a little uh, tongue twister day today and getting some of this stuff out. So Dean Polk um, from Rutgers, in cooperation with Tim Schuler, the state apiarist, they're looking into the issue and they spent 2015 taking samples from 101 hives to see if they can determine, determine what was going on. Dean talked about the management practices of growers and boy, is that an eye-opening story. The sprays and applications leading up to during pollination and post-pollination and all the reasons of why they do it are mind-boggling. The blueberry growers, like any other fruit growers I imagine, have a tricky ballet of dealing with pollination and grubs and maggots and other pests that could easily take down an operation. And they have millions of dollars at stake. To my knowledge, blueberries... New Jersey is the biggest blueberry supplier, but Dean mentioned that Georgia recently supplanted New Jersey in that title. So Tim and Dean used a SAR farmer grant to study the problem. And as I said, they monitored and sampled around 100 hives during the 2015 season to see what shape the bees were in. And at the end of the pollination season, what residues could be found and what impacts they had on the bees to try and draw some conclusions about what can be done to address the industry. The findings as he presented were primordial soup, insecticides, miticides, fungicides. It's a litany of chemicals found that have to be collated for impacts as to whether they're harmful, benign, working in conjunction with other products to cause synergistic impacts and even more. If you watch the presentation, which I took some footage on and hopefully you'll get to produce momentarily, it's amazing all the stuff they found. And the bottom line is, while it seems that they have some leads, there are likely more questions than answers and more funding is needed here to sort out the outcomes and make sense of it all so proper recommendations can be found for the beekeepers and growers alike. As a side note, an offer was made at the meeting for donations to start off the funding for 2016 of $5,000 by one of the participants in the audience. And more offers like this are going to be needed to keep one of New Jersey's vital crops viable for growers and commercial beekeepers who depend on this industry to make a living. I'm not sure what's going to happen on taking action on that uh, generous offer. But I really think that the beekeepers of New Jersey should step up and do these type of things. You see these Indiegogo and other campaigns for a bunch of stuff. This one definitely requires funding. There was more to the meeting, including a return on the information from the pollen survey done by the New Jersey Department of Agriculture that Tim presented. Tim being the principal collector of all that data. 
But given how long this segment is going and where we are in the schedule here, I think I'll just uh, hold that for another day. I did Tim speak to Tim and suggested it might be time for him to come back to the show, and that would be a great thing for him to share the results on. So my primary camera that I use for video shoots is broken, and I sent it off for repair. I have a uh, semi-pro camcorder that I bought to shoot videos with, and unfortunately the focus motor is gone. I don't know if it uh, got busted somewhere along the line at one of our meetings here. More beekeeping bills, and my lovely wife is going to start questioning my sanity. But um, I want to be able to keep bringing content, so I'm going to put it in. People keep suggesting to me that maybe I do a Patreon campaign or something. Quite honestly, I have no... I've contemplated... um, I've said this before. I've contemplated allowing sponsors to come in or doing Patreon campaigns. And I just don't want to pollute the podcast with that stuff in the middle. I'd rather just keep it all about beekeeping. I do have a PayPal link out there if you want to donate. That's great. But um, I don't know. I might have to rethink this because my beekeeping budget has grown every year, unfortunately. And a lot of it has to do with my activities for creating the podcast and shooting videos and stuff. So, But anyway, that's an aside. So the problem with the camera is that the video feature, the one that I used, was a point-and-shoot camera, and it only records 30-minute segments, and then it goes to sleep. And some of the sessions were longer than 30 minutes, so they have a gap right in the middle, and I have to look to see if I can cobble them together without problems. I know that to be true for Mr. Polk's presentation, that it died right in the middle, and I restarted it. And I guess I'll edit it, put most of what I shot together, and get it up on our YouTube channel in the coming days as time allows. But I definitely really need to get my camera back. I just transferred the money into PayPal so that I can send a payment over to them. And hopefully in the next week or so I can get it back repaired, good as new. So it goes to show back to the meeting topic, that there's a lot to learn about these meetings, and I didn't mention the networking that took place when it comes to checking in with beekeepers around the state. I know some people kind of loathe these type of meetings. They're antisocial. I'm somewhat antisocial, actually, sometimes. But I think you could tell I feel like I get a lot of value out of attending these meetings and really enjoy them. I wanted to take a moment before I close this segment and say congratulations to the Jake Mathenius Award winners, Rod Donovan and Joe Alvarez. Two awards were given out as the award was missed last year. And uh, Rod won, I think, the 2015 one, and Joe is the taker of the 2016 one. Jake Mathenius could be considered the forefather of the beekeeping scene here in New Jersey and Actually, the United States, if you think about it, that's not a reach. I'm proud to say that Jake is a NWNJBA life member, past NWNJBA, and I believe NJBA president, past state apiarist, and founder of both the U.S. Eastern and Western Apiculture Societies. As an individual goes, he's done it all. And the heritage of this award goes deep to the roots of beekeeping in the U.S., certainly in New Jersey. 
So Rod and Joe are both fixtures of the NJBA state team. Rod is best known for helping with the NJBA auctions that happen at state meetings, especially in the February honey auction and the equipment one that they do in August. And Joe, well, he's the current secretary and has his hands in on so many things at the state level. As I've reported in past episode, he was involved with the JCP&L Causeway uh, plantings and other activities. So congrats to both of them. Very well deserved. And I'll let everyone know when I get these videos from these meetings out there. The ones that I have. So that ends the segment part. Let's go to the back of the book. Quite a bit to cover here too. Roundtable number one. I wanted to give a update on the New Jersey Swarm Report 2015 information. Charlie Ilsley and I are prepping for a speaking engagement this Friday night at the Morris Somerset branch of the New Jersey Beekeepers Association. The topic is on swarm prevention. Now, Charlie's been working for a few seasons on his swarm logic work using the data he's gleaned from the Northwest's swarm report data. And I had a presentation on swarm management available that I've done in the past, and we're joining forces to present to this association the ins and outs of swarm prevention. So on that note, I wanted to slide in on this conversation that I've aggregated the data from the past three years for that presentation. It's a combined 2013, 14, and 15 data into a single graphic that shows unequivocally what has happened in the past three years. When you combine the data, it becomes evident that in New Jersey, swarming starts in the last week of April and rolls through May and June before it tapers off in early to mid-July. There's a small blip in late August and early to mid-September also, but it is certainly nothing compared to the swarming activity that our beekeepers have presented in the springtime. This is in essence what, what I created the swarm report for. It's the evidence that I was looking for and wanted to present to beekeepers of when the likeliest time is to expect swarming to begin and operate during the state. We were talking about this chart in previewing it with the Morris Somerset uh, team, showing them what we were going to present, and had the conversation about observations on swarming. In the beginning, when I started the New Jersey Swarm Report, I would have thought that swarming would start in the south, in New Jersey because they get warm weather before us and roll to the top of the state. I always thought that Jersey Cape, down by Cape May, got warmer weather before us in the central region and certainly before Sussex and those to the north, Bergen County and so on. To the contrary, the data shows that swarming starts all at once throughout the state. A few of us were postulating why at the meeting, and I think it has to do with the availability of light for plants and temps consistent across the state that allow certain plants to bloom in such close proximity statewide to each other that that wave effect we were thinking of is non-existent. It's only a couple degrees here or there, and the light is fairly consistent across the whole region. I think if you looked maybe 
across the mid-Atlantic region, you'd see the wave run out of Virginia through Maryland, Delaware, and up to New Jersey and into Pennsylvania and New York. But New Jersey is too small of a geography to matter. So if you want to see where the what the swarm frequency is, you can go to www.njswarm.com and look for the post on the 2013, 14, and 15 swarm frequency grid. Or, of course, you can visit our show notes. I'll have a link for you there. Roundtable number two, overnight oats. I'm a big fan of oatmeal for breakfast. I'm not a fan of the instant oatmeal packets that you get out of a little paper thing. I prefer steel-cut oats, the real ones. But the problem during the weekday is they're a little bit difficult to cook, so you have to fall back to typical old-fashioned rolled oats. So I've discovered not too long ago that you can make overnight oats. These are the kind that you make the night before, and then you eat them and they're ready to go. There was a recipe on a steel-cut oats that said if you soak things overnight, you don't have to cook them as long. And I'm pleased to say that I found several recipes online for overnight oats, and they include honey in them. And I actually made one recently, which I'm going to talk about in a moment. And then I put in my recipe binder two other variants that I'm eager to try. One of them is called Cocoa Banana Overnight Oats. And the other one is a combination of orange, coconut, and vanilla. That one's out for Sharon. She doesn't like coconut. But I think that's a neat-sounding combination. The one I want to focus on here is the one that's based on lemon, thyme, and honey. I tried this last week, and it was incredible. I'm not kidding when I say this really surprised me, as I would have thought thyme would have been a weird pairing, but it provides a savory element to the lemon juice and the sweetness of the honey, and a little vanilla extract along with the vanilla yogurt make it a smooth, great combination. Other ingredients in this concoction include milk and lemon zest. And the recipe that I found didn't call for it, but I added a pinch of salt because I know that always good is a good yang to the yang. The oats soften from the soak overnight and become creamy and pliable they're not chewy and whatever as you would think they might be they plump up some if you can imagine that so let me tell you what's in this half cup of rolled oats a teaspoon of lemon juice a teaspoon of lemon zest a quarter teaspoon of pure vanilla extract a half cup of vanilla greek yogurt you can use any kind i like the vanilla greek kind one-third cup of milk. I used skim milk in my recipe. It came out fine. The recipe calls for one to two sprigs of fresh thyme. Use the leaves removed from the stem. A teaspoon of honey. And again, for mine, I added a pinch of salt. So I made this recently and didn't have access to fresh thyme, so I used ground thyme that we had in the pantry. Specifically, I use McCormick brand if you're interested. This is really potent stuff. We use it sometime in soup stock and so on, and a little bit goes a long way. Two products, sage and thyme, in a ground format like this are really potent. 
I use a sixteenth of a teaspoon, and even that might be a bit too hearty for some. You simply just want a note of it in the oatmeal. You don't want it to come through really strong. Making this couldn't be any easier. Just put everything together, mix it so that the oatmeal is completely covered by something wet, and put it in the refrigerator until morning. You can eat it straight up, or you can have it with something like a sliced ripe banana, which is how I ate it last week. Again, you can mix in different things, fruits, nuts. I think coconut flakes would probably go wood, good, but again, don't tell Sharon. She loses the taste of coconut. And I would suggest you give it a try. I like it so much that I made it last night, and I shot a video of it, and I'll have <laughs> a video of it. This is like a repeating theme up on our website. I want to give the credit to the source of the recipe. It's not mine. It came from the Breakfast Drama Queen blog. Kudos to that nice young lady for a great new taste for breakfast. I'll provide a link to her original page where she talks about coming up with the recipe and her version of the recipe in our show notes. Roundtable number three, this is a short one, Intermediate Training Course. At the NJBA meeting, there was an announcement, and these are few and far between, so I thought I would share it. Dewey Karen, Dewey Karen, slow down, Kevin, is leading a local to New Jersey intermediate training course at the Trenton Mercer Airport on March 13th. If you don't know where that is, it's right off of 95, just north of the Philadelphia, or north of the Pennsylvania line. Pretty easy to get to usually for our area. The one-day course runs from 8.30 to 4.30 and costs $30 to attend. Do note that price includes lunch. And the proceeds of the course benefit the New Jersey Mid-State Beekeepers Branch and the Bee Informed Partnership. If you're interested in this, you could reach out to Jeff Bird, Jeff.Bird, B-U-R-D is how you spell his name, at Comcast.net. I'll reiterate this one more time. It's not a beginner's course, but an intermediate course. Announcements for basic beekeeping courses will, I assume, appear throughout the year. Roundtable number four, bait hives. I have to get Bob back on the show here because he keeps turning up in what we're doing. So Bob Kloss took a page out of Linda Tillman's bee blog a few years ago when he created some bait hives out of fiber potting flower pots. He used these for a few years in his yard but had an inkling to make more permanent wood hive traps as we've been discussing trying to find feral bees. He found some plans on the internet, went to a local box store, and had them cut out the pieces, and then he went home and built a prototype. He brought it along to preview at the last exec meeting, and I have to admit it was pretty darn cool looking at it. Very similar to the ones that Jim Schmalls made recently in his wood shop. The good news is he purchased enough materials to make four more, but he wanted to change the design some and make a more traditional telescoping uh, type cover or telescoping roof. 
To that end, I have a bit more woodworking equipment at my disposal, and he asked if I wanted to collaborate in finishing the build, and we could split up the bounty. That, of course, is an offer of gratitude, and we got to work together on a project a few weeks ago. Bob and I are pretty compatible, and working together affords the ability to build something and spend the afternoon talking bees. Almost like drinking buddies without the alcohol. Although I joked about opening a bottle of mead that was sitting around the corner while we were working. So building the boxes was a glue and screw exercise. And one thing that made the job super easy is my hive building jig that I made last year. You know, it's nothing more than a number of right angle clamps screwed to a board. But it really does give an extra hand and make getting the boxes square and true a simple exercise that anyone can do. I built my own boxes in the past, especially nuke boxes, but one thing that I never tackled was building a telescope and cover. The actual cover is not that difficult, but working on the metal flashing that protects the wood is something that takes a little finesse. We went head on into the task of making the four covers and they came out great. We could check that off a bucket list. And while things like this are simply understanding the dynamics of building something by breaking it down into its small parts, it was satisfying to see the lids came out with a fit and finish that was closer to professional looking than homemade. It helps to have the right tools and the right cutting implements and to take your time. I'll have to circle back to Bob to find out where he sourced the design and posted to the notes. So one thing we discussed about the traps is when to put them out. Bob followed this up recently with me after building the traps because he got a chance to speak to Jorick Phillips and Megan Denver recently when he passed through the Hudson Valley Bee Supply as he was returning home from a work trip. And it came up that Tom Seeley suggested now is the time you want to put your bait hives out. The reasoning of this, he shared with me, is that the scouts literally don't wait until the colony wishes to issue a swarm. As always, the bees have a plan, and in this case it's no exception. The wisdom is that early in the season they begin scouting. I have one more task to make this hive thing a reality, and that is to build a jib. Jib, that's a funny word. Jib. Not a jig, a jib. A jib is to help get the uh, swarm hive high up in a tree. I have a bee culture article from a while back flagged with a contraption that uses 2 by 4s and pulleys to hoist and lower the hives 15 feet, 20 feet up into a tree. Having them hanging and then pulling them in or securing to a tree seems far more palatable than climbing up or down a 30-foot extension ladder with a box or better yet, a box full of bees taking them down. So this jig has a 2x4s that go up to this bracket that has... A brace that goes out with a piece of plywood that lets it rest against a tree. And the brace has pulleys on it. And you run a rope on it. 
and you lower a hook down and you hook it to the top of the hive and you pull the rope, pull, 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 and the hive ascends up to where the top of the jib is laying against the tree. And then you go on the other side with your ladder and you secure it to the tree with ropes and unhook the pulley and take the jib down. To take the hive down, you reverse the process. We were having discussions about how to use a thing called a unistrut that was in the example in bee culture to to make something where you tie the bait hive to the tree and secure it. So the bait hives are pretty much ready. I'm not sure how to build the hoist to, to bring them up. And we're going to build the jib the next weekend or two. And they have to get painted. Bob brought me back some eco wood treatment uh, to coat these hives and have a bunch of different things. So I'm going to try that product. So cool. I'll see if I could provide a link to the bait hive patterns that Bob used. And I'll definitely provide a link to the homemade flower pot swarm trap video that Bob made that explains those things. Round table number five. This is a follow-up on zombie bees. We talked about in episode number 84, Spreading Seeds, how John Hafernick in San Francisco discovered that bees were being consumed from the inside out by different larvae that emerge and it is possible that the maggots eat the inside of the bee before crawling out, then they spin a red cocoon. Recently in MSN, there was a article that went over this, talking about what we spoke about in episode 84, that there are a large number of zombies being reported, especially along the West Coast being infected. You see a lot of them in the San Francisco area. You see a lot of them up in the upper northwest. And then you're starting to see them confirmed in New York, Pennsylvania, and there's a confirmation in South Dakota. There's a lot of sampling going on, and there are some that have been determined as not infected. And of course, all things California travel to all things Florida, and there's just tons and tons of sampling going on there. If you wanted to keep track of this, there is now a website called Zombie Watch. Z-O-M-B-E-E-W-A-T-C-H dot org. There you can follow along on a Google map all of the pins of where people are seeing zombies and whether or not they have been confirmed as infected or not, and it's using citizen science data to document the localities where zombie flies are infecting honeybees. Zombiewatch.org is the URL. Looking at the timing, I guess I'll kind of look to shut it down. One more, roundtable number six. This one's called Cagey. Our Beekeepers Association runs two fairs a year, one at Warren County, one at Hunterdon County, our two sending county areas. And in one, we borrow one bee cage, and in one, we borrow another. And we've grown accustomed to asking for these things and securing them, but sometimes it becomes a hassle. And, you know, it would just be easier if we owned our own, especially since we do two fairs a year. My neighbor down the street, Jim, and I are working on plans 
And we went through how to build one of these. We're using the one that we use for Hunterdon County as the model. It's a nice, spacious bee cage. It'll fit a couple people in it, plus a hive. has a nice shape, and it has a lot of good features. We're brainstorming how to build a duplicate copy of it, but improve upon it in various ways, including assembly and takedown, and the features for signage and so on. You could really engineer something like this. <laughs> we're, we're getting rather ambitious in our desires and whatever, but I think what we came up with is really, really cool, and uh, we're starting on the plan. I won't make any promises, but we have in the back of our head, or at least I do, to document the process of how to build the floor, how to build the walls, how to build the roof, the lighting, the sound, and so on for this thing. And do a bee culture article on the construction with plans available to anybody who wants to build one just like we are. So my neighbor has a wood shop. I have uh, woodworking tools. And between the two of us, we think a couple trips to a box store or a lumber yard, we should be able to put this together relatively quickly. And I'm looking forward to seeing results on that. Last weekend, we sketched out how we would build it and what materials we would need. We were going to do some research on a couple things just, just to check those out. And then in the next week or two, we'll get to building it. In fact, I'm going to make a run down there on Monday since I happen to be off and uh, chat with them. Uh, he and his wife. His wife is the secretary of our organization and he is my first vice president on a number of beekeeping matters, but follow up on keeping the momentum going for the bee cage. So pretty exciting uh, to get to that. And of course, we'll bring you updates as it proceeds. It dawns on me that I use the word cage. Actually, it's a bee demonstration booth. I don't know uh, if we're the only ones in New Jersey that use a bee cage analogy for that. But, um, you know, in essence, it allows you to work with a live hive and not let the bees get out amongst the people who are standing around you. You've probably seen them, but... You know, one of the surprising things is there's just no plans out on the internet for these things. There's plans for everything, but we did not seem to find anything for this, so we're winging it. If you know of any, shoot me a note. So I guess it's time to close the episode down. wanted to make a couple short mentions. First thing is, for anybody that donates to the podcast through PayPal, thank you. I receive occasional donations here or there. Uh, you're Donations are appreciated, and they all go towards producing the podcast. I also receive um, indications when iTunes reviews come in. They are very helpful to the podcast. If you haven't taken the time and are so inclined, do leave us a review, good, bad, or indifferent. The reviews help us to stay front and center when people are searching for the podcast. So anything that comes through is really helpful. One recently came through that uh, just warms my heart because it talks about all the different things that they appreciate about the Beekeeping, Beekeeper's Corner podcast. And they hit on all the notes of the things that I try to impress upon, um, keeping it light going, covering different stories, the work that it takes to do some of the research and things like that. And uh it just shows that people are out there that do appreciate the effort, and it's what keeps us going. I have a message from Joe Lewis. 
saying that he found some information about the Indiana ankle biters on our site, episode number 50, but apparently the link that I have no longer works. Occasionally, these links that we put up over time fall by the wayside. He wants to know what's going on with the ankle biter effort. Uh, thanks, Joe, from Bel Air, Maryland. I will add that to the list of to-dos and see if I can go back and get some information on that. So that being said, I think um, we're good to go. Michael Carr was another one. Just wanted to mention, he also asked if I was interested in a Patreon site for subscribers. Michael, as you heard earlier, I'm kind of thinking about it, but trying to stay away from that. Um, wanted to know if there was an RSS feed for all of the website posts. You know, I had never thought about that. I always provide the RSS for the podcast proper. I believe if I go and look, there is something in there and I will make that, uh, front and center if I can find it and I'll reply back to you, Michael. So thanks for that question. That's a good one because if you're asking for it, so are others. All right, I think I am done. Let me just check my notes. I am, so I'll leave you with this. Like our beloved bees, when beekeepers go together, we accomplish great things. Thanks for listening, and be well.